Chapter Eleven of The Last Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. The Last Trail by Zane Gray. Chapter Eleven. The savage had just emerged from the river, where his graceful copper-colored body and scanty clothing were dripping with water. He carried a long bow and a quiver of arrows. Brant uttered an exclamation of surprise, and Metzer a curse. As the lithe Indian leaped the brook, he was not young. His swarthy face was lined, seamed, and terrible with dark impassiveness. "'Pale-face, brother, get arrow,' he said in halting English, as his eyes flashed upon Brant. "'Chief, want make sure.' The white man leaned forward, grasped the Indian's arm, and addressed him in an Indian language. This questioning was evidently in regard to his signal, the whereabouts of the others of the party, and why he took such fearful risks almost in the village. The Indian answered with one English word, Deathwind. Brant drew back with drawn white face, while a whistling breath escaped him. I knew it, Metz, Wetzel. He exclaimed in a husky voice. The blood slowly receded from Metzer's evil, murky face, leaving it haggard. Death wind on Chief's trail up Eagle Rock, continued the Indian. Death wind fooled not for long. Chief wait pale-faced brothers at two islands. The Indian stepped into the brook, parted the willows, and was gone as he had come, silently. "'We know what to expect,' said Brant in calmer tone, as the daring cast of countenance returned to him. "'There's an Indian for you. He got away, doubled like an old fox on his trail, and ran in here to give us a chance at escape. Now you know why Bing Leggett can't be caught.' "'Let's dig at once,' replied Metzer, with no show of returning courage as characterized by his companion. Brent walked to and fro with bent brows like one in deep thought. Suddenly he turned upon Metzer, eyes which were brightly hard and reckless with resolve. By heaven, I'll do it. Listen. Wetzel has gone to the top of Eagle Mountain, where he and Zane have a rendezvous. Even he won't suspect the cunning of this Indian. Anyway, it'll be after daylight tomorrow before he strikes the trail. I've got twenty-four hours, and more, to get this girl, and I'll do it. Bad move, to have weight like her on a march, said Metzer. Bah, the thing's easy. As for you, go on. Push ahead. After we're started, all I ask is that you stay by me until the time to cut loose. I ain't a-going to crawfish now, growled Metzer. Strikes me, too. I'm losing more'n you. You won't be a loser if you can get back to Detroit with your scalp. I'll pay you in horses and gold. Once we reach Leggett's place, we're safe. "'What's your plan about getting the gal?' asked Metzer. Brant leaned forward and spoke eagerly, but in a low tone. "'Get away on horseback?' questioned Metzer, visibly brightening. "'Well, that's some sense. Can ye trust the other party?' "'I'm sure I can,' rejoined Brant. "'It'll be a good job, a good job, and all done in daylight, too. Bing Lingett couldn't plan better,' Metzer said." rubbing his hands. We fooled these Zanes and their fruit-raising farmers for about a year, and our time is about up, Brent muttered. One more job, and we're done. Once with Leggett, we're safe. 
and will work slowly back towards Detroit. Let's get out of here now, for someone may come at any moment. The plotters separated, Brant going through the grove and Metzer down the path by which he had come. Helen, trembling with horror of what she had heard, raised herself cautiously from the willows where she had lain and watched the innkeeper's retreating figure. When it had disappeared, she gave a little gasp of relief, free now to run home, there to plan what course must be pursued. She conquered her fear and weakness, and hurried from the glade. Luckily, so far, as she was able to tell, no one saw her return. She resolved that she would be cool, deliberate, clever, worthy of the borderman's confidence. First she tried to determine the purport of this interview between Brent and Metzer. She recalled to mind all that was said and supplied, what she thought had been suggested. Brant and Metzer were horse-thieves, aides of Bing Leggett. They had repaired to the glade to plan. The Indian had been a surprise. Wetzel had routed the Shawnees, and was now on the trail of this chieftain. The Indian warned them to leave Fort Henry, and to meet him at a place called Two Islands. Brant's plan, presumably somewhat changed by the advent of the Red Man, was to steal horses, abduct a girl in broad daylight, and, before tomorrow's sunset, escape to join the ruffian Leggett. "'I am that girl,' murmured Helen shudderingly, as she relapsed momentarily into girlish fears, but at once she rose above selfish feelings. Secondly, while it was easy to determine what the outlaws meant, the wisest course was difficult to conceive. She had promised the borderman to help him, and not speak of anything she learned to anybody himself. She could not be true to him if she asked advice. The point was clear. Either she must remain in the settlement, hoping for Jonathan's return in time to frustrate Brant's villainous scheme, or find the borderman. Suddenly she remembered Metzer's allusion to a second person whom Brant felt certain he could trust. This met another traitor in Fort Henry, another horse-thief, another desperado willing to make off with helpless women. Helen's spirit rose in arms. She had their secret. She could ruin them. She would find the borderman. Wetzel was on the trail at Eagle Rock. What for? Trailing an Indian, who was then five miles east of that rock. Not Wetzel. He was on that track to meet Jonathan. Otherwise, with the redskins near the river, he would have been closer to them. He would meet Jonathan there at sunset today, Helen decided. She paced the room, trying to still her throbbing heart and trembling hands. I must be calm, she said sternly. Time is precious. I have not a moment to lose. I will find him. I've watched that mountain many a time, and can find the trail and the rock. I am in more danger here than out there in the forest. With Wetzel and Jonathan on the mountainside, the Indians have fled it. But what about the savage who warned Brant? Let me think. Yes, he'll avoid the river. He'll go round south of the settlement, and therefore can't see me cross. How fortunate that I have paddled a canoe many times across the river. How glad that I made Colonel Zane describe the course up the mountains. Her resolution fixed, Helen changed her skirt for one of buckskin, putting on leggings and moccasins of the same serviceable material. She filled the pockets of a short, rainproof jacket with biscuits, and, thus equipped, sallied forth with a spirit of exultation she could not subdue. Only one thing she feared, which was that Brant or Metzer might see her cross the river. 
She launched her canoe and paddled downstream under cover of the bluff to a point opposite the end of the island, then straight across, keeping the island between her and the settlement. Gaining the other shore, Helen pulled the canoe into the willows and mounted the bank. A thicket of willow and alder made progress up the steep incline difficult, but once out of it, she faced a long stretch of grassy meadowland. A mile beyond began the green, billowy rise of that mountain she intended to climb. Helen's whole soul was thrown into the adventure. She felt her strong young limbs in accord with her heart. "'Now, Mr. Brandt, horse-thief and girl-snatcher, we'll see,' she said, with scornful lips. "'If I can't beat you now, I'm not fit to be Betty Zane's friend, and I am unworthy of a borderman's trust.' She traversed the whole length of the meadowland close under the shadow of the fringed bank, and gained the forest. Here she hesitated. All was so wild and still. No definite course through the woods seemed to invite, and yet all was open, trees, trees, dark, immovable trees everywhere. The violent trembling of poplar and aspen leaves, when all others were so calm, struck her strangely, and the fearful stillness awed her. Drawing a deep breath, she started forward up the gently rising ground. As she advanced, the open forest became darker, and of wilder aspect. The trees were larger, and closer together. Still, she made fair progress, without deviating from the course she had determined upon. Before her rose a ridge, with a ravine on either side, reaching nearly to the summit of the mountain. Here the underbrush was scanty. The fallen trees had slipped down the side and the rocks were not so numerous, all of which gave her reason to be proud, so far, of her judgment. Helen, pressing onward and upward, forgot time and danger. While she reveled in the wonder of the forest land, birds and squirrels fled before her, whistling and wheezing of alarm, or heavy crashings in the brushes told of frightened wild beasts. A dull, faint roar, like a distant wind, suggested tumbling waters. A single birch-tree, gleaming white among the black trees, enlivened the gloomy forest. Patches of sunlight brightened the shade. Giant ferns, just tingling with autumn colors, waved tips of sculptured perfection. Most wonderful of all were the colored leaves, as they floated downward with a sad, gentle rustle. Helen was brought to a realization of her hazardous undertaking by a sudden roar of water, and the abrupt termination of the ridge in a deep gorge. Grasping a tree, she leaned over to look down. It was fully a hundred feet deep, with impassable walls, green-stained and damp at the bottom of which a brawling brown brook rushed on its way, fully twenty feet wide. It presented an insurmountable barrier to further progress in that direction. But Helen looked upon it merely as a difficulty to be overcome. She studied the situation and decided to go to the left because higher ground was to be seen that way. Abandoning the ridge, she pressed on, keeping as close to the gorge as she dared, and came presently to a fallen tree lying across the dark cleft. Without a second's hesitation, for she knew which would be fatal, she stepped upon the tree and started across, looking at nothing but the log under her feet, while she tried to imagine herself walking across the water-gate at home in Virginia. She accomplished the venture without a misstep. When safely on the ground once more, she felt her knees tremble, and a queer, light feeling came into her head. She laughed, however, as she rested a moment. It would take more than a gorge to discourage her. 
she resolved with set lips, as once again she made her way along the rising ground. Perilous, if not desperate, work was ahead of her. Broken, rocky ground, matted thicket, and seemingly impenetrable forest rose darkly in advance, but she was not even tired, and climbed, crawled, twisted, and turned on her way upward. She surmounted a rocky ledge to face a higher ridge covered with splintered, uneven stones, and the fallen trees of many storms. Once she slipped and fell, spraining her wrist. At length this uphill labor began to weary her. To breathe caused a pain in her side, and she was compelled to rest. Already the gray light of coming night shrouded the forest. She was surprised at seeing the trees become indistinct, because the shadows hovered over the thickets, and noted that the dark, dim outline of the ridges was fading into obscurity. She struggled up on the uneven slope with a tightening at her heart, which was not all exhaustion. For the first time she doubted herself, but it was too late. She could not turn back. Suddenly she felt that she was on a smoother, easier course. Not to strike a stone or break a twig seemed unusual. It might be a path worn by deer going to a spring. Then into her troubled mind flashed the joyful thought. She had found a trail. Soft, wiry grass, springing from a wet soil, rose under her feet. A little rill trickled alongside the trail. Mossy, soft-cushioned stones lay embedded here and there. Young maples and hickories grew breast-high on either side, and the way wound in and out under the lowering shade of forest monarchs. Swiftly ascending this path, she came at length to a point where it was possible to see some distance ahead. The ascent became hardly noticeable. Then, as she turned a bend of the trail, the light grew brighter and brighter until presently all was open and clear. An oval space covered with stones lay before her. A big, blasted chestnut stood nearby. Beyond was the dim, purple haze of distance. Above, the pale blue sky, just faintly rose-tinted by the setting sun. Far to her left, the scraggly trees of a low hill were tipped with orange and russet shades. She had reached the summit. Desolate and lonely was this little plateau. Helen felt immeasurably far away from home, yet she could see in the blue distance the glancing river, the dark fort, and that cluster of cabins which marked the location of Fort Henry. Sitting upon the roots of the big chestnut tree, she gazed around. There were the remains of a small campfire beyond a hollow under a shelving rock. A bed of dry leaves lay packed in this shelter. Someone had been here, and she doubted not that it was the borderman. She was so tired and her wrist pained so severely that she lay back against the tree trunk, closed her eyes, and rested. A weariness, the apathy of utter exhaustion, came over her. She wished the borderman would hurry and come before she went to sleep. Drowsily, she was sinking into slumber when a long, low rumble aroused her. How dark it had suddenly become! A sheet of pale light flared across the overcast heavens. A storm! exclaimed Helen. Alone on this mountain top with a storm coming? Am I frightened? I don't believe it. At least I'm safe from that ruffian Brant. Oh, if my borderman would only come. Helen changed her position from beside the tree to the hollow under the stone. It was high enough to permit of her standing upright, and offered a safe retreat from the storm. The bed of leaves was soft and comfortable. 
She sat there, peering out at the darkening heavens. All beneath her, southward and westward, was gray twilight. The settlement faded from sight. The river grew wan and shadowy. The ruddy light in the west was fast succumbing to the rolling clouds. Darker and darker it became, until only one break in the overspreading vapors admitted the last crimson gleam of sunshine over hills and valley, brightening the river until it resembled a stream of fire. Then the light failed, the glow faded. The intense blackness of night prevailed. Out of the even west came presently another flare of light, a quick, spreading flash like a flicker from a monster candle. It was followed by a long, low, rumbling roll. Helen felt in those intervals of utterly vast silence that she must shriek aloud. The thunder was a friend. She prayed for the storm to break. She had withstood danger and toilsome effort with fortitude, but could not brave this awful, boding, wilderness stillness. Flashes of lightning now revealed the rolling, pushing, turbulent clouds, and peals of thunder sounded nearer and louder. A long, swelling moan, sad, low, like the uneasy sigh of the sea, breathed far in the west. It was the wind, the ominous warning of the storm. Sheets of light were now mingled with long, straggling ropes of fire, and the rumblings were often broken by louder, quicker detonations. Then a period, longer than usual, of inky blackness succeeded the sharp flaring of light. A faint breeze ruffled the leaves of the thicket and fanned Helen's hot cheek. The moan of the wind became more distinct than louder, and in another instant, like the far-off roar of a rushing river, the storm was upon her. Helen shrank closer against the stone and pulled her jacket tighter around her trembling form. A sudden, intense, dazzling, blinding white light enveloped her. The rocky promontory, the weird giant chestnut tree, the open plateau, and beyond the stormy heavens were all luridly clear in the flash of lightning. She fancied it was possible to see a tall, dark figure emerging from the thicket. As the thunderclap rolled and pealed overhead, she strained her eyes into the blackness, waiting for the next lightning flash. It came with brilliant, dazzling splendor. The whole plateau and thicket were as light as the day. Close by the stone where she lay crept a tall, dark figure of an Indian. With staring eyes she saw the fringed clothing, the long, flying hair, and supple body peculiar to the savage. He was creeping upon her. Helen's blood ran cold. Terror held her voiceless. She felt herself sinking slowly down upon the leaves. End of chapter 11